Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, a podcast that takes just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Pramack. On today's show, what Morgan Stanley just taught us about tech startups and Amazon, here's the HQ2 heat in New York. But first, a mega merger gets political. So last April, Sprint and T-Mobile US agreed to merge in a $26 billion deal that would reduce the number of major national wireless carriers from four to three. Now, at the time, leaders of both companies expressed extreme confidence that their transaction would receive regulatory approval. And yeah, CEOs always express that sort of confidence when announcing a big merger even for ones that ultimately get blocked. But I've got to say, I I was on the call and it really didn't sound forced. One reason is probably because Sprint and T-Mobile aren't just the third and fourth players behind AT&T and Verizon, but they're the third and fourth players way behind AT&T and Verizon. Even combined, they don't get to number two. So they probably weren't as concerned about the anti-competitive threat. Also, neither one of them has a big media component or really anything related to China, which have been the two big exceptions to the Trump administration's business-friendly stance on mergers. And plus, there is this idea that by combining T-Mobile and Sprint, you'd improve the rollout of so-called 5G networking in the US, which again is a Trump administration priority. But the thing is, April 2018, when they announced that deal, It's a long time ago, and it has run into significant opposition from rural carriers and other rivals like Dish, plus the sorts of progressive political groups that are ascendant in February 2019, Washington, D.C. In fact, this week, the CEOs of both companies are going to testify before Congress where they should expect a much less friendly audience than they received on their announcement call for bank analysts. Now, Congress doesn't actually get the final call here, but it can put a lot of pressure on the FCC and Department of Justice. And the final resolution could shape America's wireless landscape for decades to come. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Axios tech reporter Dave McCabe. But first, this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days, it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the ProRata podcast. We're joined now by Axios tech reporter David McCabe. So, David, you wrote this morning that this deal has kind of divided Democrats. Explain, what's the fissure there? So the fissure is not an immediate obvious, you know, it's not every centrist Democrat on one side and every progressive Democrat on the other. But we have seen a letter led by Representative Anna Eshoo, who is very friendly with the tech world in California. She led a letter with some colleagues of both parties supporting the deal. And we know, and we broke last night, that Rashida Tlaib, who's one of these new progressive members of the House, House elected in this last midterm cycle is asking people to sign on to a letter opposing the deal. So we broke last night the text of that letter. I remember and I said in the open that, that you know, when this deal got announced, you know, Clare, the CEO of Sprint and, and John Legere, the, the CEO of T-Mobile, they were incredibly confident in this. And again, I don't even think it was put on confidence. I, I think it was legitimate, sincere confidence. How much do you think is that they were perhaps wrong about the law and the legal piece of this? Or how much was it simply they did not expect there to be a progressive like a real left-leaning blue wave in November that was going to change things for them. I think it certainly complicates things. And beyond just the idea that progressives might be sort of leading the backlash to this, obviously it puts Democrats in control of the key congressional committees. That's the oversight that we're going to see in the hearings this week. You know, I'm not sure 
it's hard to speak to whether or not they underestimated it. And as you know, these processes can get pretty complicated and become sort of a grind and then ultimately result in a deal being approved. But I definitely think that they were banking on their sort of America first Trump aimed case to carry them. And we'll see how that does in a Democratic Congress. Okay, so let's talk about the Congress piece. So so the hearings are later this week, Wednesday and Thursday in the House. But, you know, as you wrote and I said, Congress itself can't actually block this deal. It's, It's not like this deal goes to a congressional vote. It gets determined ultimately by the DOJ and the FCC. If there continues to be opposition from Congress based on this hearing and there's not some sort of smoking gun that, you know, clearly blows it out of the water, what can opposition Congress people actually do? I mean, they can put a lot of pressure on regulators to look more closely at the deal. They can certainly raise the stakes for regulators at the FCC and at the DOJ by making sure the public is aware of their concerns about the deal. And if the public turns out to be on their side, then the DOJ and the FCC know that they might face a backlash over there. Do they necessarily care, though? Because the DOJ and the FCC are ultimately reporting to Trump. Isn't that therefore who they have to satisfy? Trump cares about his base, per se. He doesn't necessarily care about the majority of the American people in terms of what he supports or doesn't. Well, you know, the FCC is an independent agency and the DOJ's process is supposed to be separate from the White House, but especially the FCC obviously struck down the Sinclair deal or, or moved to, to block the Sinclair deal as best they could over the president's, I think, stated preference after that happened. But no, certainly they can operate independently of the White House if they want to, and certainly of congressional Democrats if they want to. You talked about this kind of America first theory, right? This idea, you know, they were going to improve 5G networking. It was going to create jobs. Somehow merging two companies was going to create jobs, even though that's not how it usually works. How is that? You know, that was last April. That's when they announced this. Talk to me a little bit of what's happened since then in terms of messaging and also in terms of what they are pledging and promising. What do we now know or what have they offered now that they didn't originally? So the messaging has remained pretty consistent, which is essentially we need this to compete with Verizon and AT&T on the race to 5G. And they framed that, as I said, in terms of an America first way, because the concern is that other countries might beat us to some of the fifth generation wireless technology. But they have been rolling out promises actually really in the last month, I think potentially with the understanding that they need something to trot out before Congress. Carrots to beat off the stick. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and the carrots are a promise not to raise rates for three years, because one of the concerns is that this will result in higher prices. And they've also started to roll out these sort of service center, big job, splashy releases. So that's saying, you know, if the merger goes through, we'll put a thousand jobs in Overland, Kansas, where Sprint is based, we'll put a thousand jobs somewhere in New York State. And I think they said they're going to do five of those. I think it will be fun to look in a little bit at what states those are in and whether or not they correlate with key lawmakers. You talk this morning, you say it's been up close and personal. So John Legere, the the CEO of T-Mobile, who who would become the CEO of the combined company, is it right he's been staying in in the Trump International Hotel when he makes his trips to D.C. and and sharing that publicly with everybody? Yeah, he's been staying in a lot of hotels. I don't know if he publicly shared that he'd been staying there before the Washington Post broke the story that that T-Mobile executives have been spending a lot of time at the Trump Hotel. But certainly, I mean, I think a Washington Post reporter caught him in the lobby, so it's not like he's hiding it. But yes, he's been in D.C. a lot, and I think it reflects how crucial the deal is to the business. Final thing, we get hearings this week. Do we have any sense, timing-wise, when we'll get an actual decision from the DOJ and FCC as to whether this deal is going to meet regulatory muster or not? So as you know, they're pretty tight-lipped when it comes to timing on these decisions. Usually, Yeah, give me a timeline anyway. <laughs> give me something. Well, the companies say they think that it'll be done by the first half of this year. It certainly has been under review for a while. I think it's hard to see. The facts are sort of on the table once these hearings are done. And I should say that it's possible that we'll see some shifting in timing of the Thursday hearing because it conflicts with a, a funeral for John Dingell here in D.C. But once that happens, they will have testified before the House, before the Senate, before Democrats, a Democratic-led committee or committees, before Republican-led committee. The wrangling has started. The negotiation has clearly started. But I have to imagine the companies are still on track or trying to be on track to get it done uh, in the first half of this year. Axios Tech reporter David McCabe, thank you so much for joining us. My final two right after this. 
Axios Chief Technology Correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech, from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to Get Smarter Faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the ProRata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is Morgan Stanley, which this morning announced it'll spend around $900 million to buy something called Solium Capital, which is a Canadian company that helps manage corporate employee stock. Now, the majority of the companies Solium works with are publicly traded, but it also manages stock for a slew of big name private tech companies like Uber and Stripe and SpaceX. And basically, it's the platform that those companies' employees use to track things like how many of their stock options have vested. Now, the reason this deal matters is that it reflects how Wall Street, or Morgan Stanley in this case, is expecting a truckload of big tech IPOs this year, at which point those startup shareholders, who to date are a little more than paper millionaires, will have actual wealth that Morgan Stanley will want to help them manage. And finally, on Friday morning, the Washington Post reported that Amazon is reconsidering putting a big part of its HQ2 project in Long Island City, following very loud opposition from certain New York politicians and community groups over what they view as way too generous tax giveaways. Then that story got walked back a bit just a few hours later in the New York Times before re-emerging in the Wall Street Journal. So that sound you hear, that media back and forth, that's Amazon panicking. There is no way it spent all that time and money and planning only to take its ball and go home because not all the locals are thrilled with its game. It still wants to be in Long Island City, but it'll have to do better than leaked threats in order to make their arrival amenable for all parties. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Adam Gracia and Tim Shovers, have a great national peppermint patty day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata podcast.